Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, and good afternoon. I'm Bill Thompson. I'm Managing Director in the Commercial Banking Union at BMO. I'd like to thank you for joining us today as we discuss the current state and the future state of the global supply chain. For the the best part of my career, which has been 20 years at BMO, I've been working with transportation companies across the U.S., uh, helping them with their capital needs, and we're partnering with my colleagues in the investment bank when our clients needed their services. Since the onset of the pandemic, my colleagues and I have been thinking about all the issues that have been coming about, having frank conversations with our clients about what they're impacting, issues are and how we can bring some assistance to them. And as part of our key principles at BMO is to add value to our clients' needs. And as such, that's why we're here today. Um, we're, help to, we're here to uh, discuss this dynamic topic. And today we have two well-recognized and highly respected individuals who cover the supply chain extensively. Uh, the first is my colleague, Fadi Shamoon, who's with BMO Equity uh, Research. and Body covers transportation companies across the spectrum from from ocean, air, surface transportation verticals. Body's been with BMO for well over 10 years. He's a highly ranked analyst in the Brendan Woods survey for auto parts, industrial products, and the transportation sectors. And on a monthly basis, Body publishes uh, an article called Cargo Connections, where he covers all modes of transportation and what's going on. Also joining us is Eric Starks. Eric is the chairman and CEO of FTR Transportation uh, Forecasting. Eric and his colleagues bring a unique perspective across many industries uh, or focus on the key drivers of the various modes. The, uh, the team at FTR offers customized database and reports to their clients so they can make sound decisions on aligning their production and freight needs. And additionally, in, in September of each year, Eric hosts a industry best three-day conference that's well attended by companies not only in transportation, but across all industrial companies, so they can learn about the current state and outlook of the industry from uh, not only executives at FTR, but industry leaders. So the, uh, before we kick this off, there's a few housekeeping items. Please feel free to ask questions throughout the webinar. You can submit these through the Q&A box. That's to the right of the video box on your screen. Uh, your question will be sent directly to me. Those on the call will not be able to see your questions. It'll just be you and I seeing them. And I'll do my best to address all questions submitted. And uh, also today's event's being recorded, so uh, the link will be shared at the following event so everyone could go back and review this. It's, uh, it's been an interesting 18 months with the pandemic impacting nearly every business. While commercial businesses have opened their doors to employees, a large amount of individuals have come back to work from home. There's been an increase in e-commerce. Sourcing raw materials and finished goods have been problematic. Inflation is the most recent issue that's impacting the economy, but the supply chain is still under duress. And I don't think there's a business out there or anyone on this call who hasn't been impacted by that. So I'd like to start with you, Eric. And when do you think this disruption really started? Is it all because of COVID or were there issues prior to COVID that were uh, out there? Yeah, no, Bill, it's it's great yeah, to be no, here, Fadi. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to, to hang out with the two of you. Uh, so it's there's a lot of complexity here. So we actually saw the freight markets starting to ease in 2019. So that was already on a downward downward trend. So it's really hard to say, okay, what caused 
you know, the, the, the disconnect in some of the things that we're seeing. Ultimately, uh, COVID really drove this home. We were, we were already at an environment that was starting to slow down and then COVID hit. And so everything got completely, completely disrupted. What was really fascinating as, as we came out of, or I guess, let me take that back, as we kind of went through the first three months of COVID, things really dropped off. And that was no surprise. But the amount of uh, resurgence that we saw, specifically in truck and intermodal, relatively quickly as we moved into the summer months, kind of started to set the stage for some of the things that we're running into now. Uh, it was very clear that as we moved into, say, January of last year, I'll take that back, not last year, the January of, of 2021, um, that the supply chain issues were getting worse. Um, we have seen uh, a lot of consumer demand out there with inventory levels uh, low relative to activity, and that creates supply chain issues in and of itself. And then you start looking at manufacturing coming back on. And as manufacturing came back online, you had two pressure points happening at the same time. You had manufacturing growing and you had the consumer demand growing. And that is really what's caused a lot of the crux of the problems that we're running into right now, as well as, finally, we can't uh, ignore COVID, right? COVID blew up some global supply chains. Uh, labor has been an issue for every single country. It's not just a U.S. Uh, issue. The ability to produce and, and get goods is, is, is globally challenging. So it's always feels like when we're talking about the North American market specifically, that, that that's where everything is sitting. And that's not it at all. Everybody's playing in the same sandbox right now. Um, so we've, we've clearly seen this market um, kind of moving this direction. Uh, but it's going to take a while for us to get out of the conundrum we're in right now. Well, thanks. And uh, Bonnie, I'd like to level set from your perspective where we're at today amongst the chain. You know, there's so many parts that are, are intertwined together between you know, everyone focusing on LA and the ports and the containers there, but you know, you got you got the chassis pool, you got trucking and drayage and rail and intermodal and then warehousing too. So you know, where do you think we're at today? Um, Eric kind of painted really a great picture, explains a lot of things. Maybe I can add a few points. Um, to that, like if I look at something like the truckload market, um, we're about two, two and a half percent higher volume than we were pre pandemic, but we are still three to four percent fewer drivers for long haul trucking than we were pre pandemic. Um, if I look at something like the air, uh, air freight market, uh, the gap is almost 17%. So you have 10% more demand and you have about 7 or 8% less capacity. And so I think all of these things that Eric described, I think were exacerbated really by that labor issue. I think labor is a big part of that, um, of that uh, supply chain disruption, the supply chain velocity loss that we have seen throughout 2021. So... Um, and 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 this kind of you know the wheel turn um, gets worse and worse because you know ultimately if you don't have that labor 
you're not able to evacuate the warehouse, you're not able to really get the velocity in the supply chain. So you start to lose the capacity that you already have. And um, I think when you look at some of the surface transportation, so long haul trucking is, like I said, in some some of form of a depth where the demand is and where the capacity is. And I think ultimately capacity has been also hurt by the loss of velocity in the supply chain. Uh, but you also see kind of what happened on the e-commerce side, like the employment for short haul trucking and local deliveries has gone through the roof. So that absorbed a lot of the a lot of the labor that could have otherwise gone elsewhere. So I, I think you know COVID ultimately has had issues in terms of um, opening up the employment uh, uh, opportunities. Uh, but I think the velocity of the supply chain has been lost as a result of all of these displacements that we have seen. And I would say at this point, I mean, it doesn't look any better. Like uh, if you look at air freight rate, we set new records this week. Uh, ocean spot rate, Asia to the US, China to the US specifically. Again, we set new record rates this week. And, and uh, the same thing within within the land side, I think things are kind of easing up a little bit, but um, it, it's still far, far from being a normalized level. I think it's going to take a little bit of time before, before we see that normalization occur. So what's it going to take on the land side? Because I think that's what everyone I've been talking with is focused on because it impacts them more directly, you know, in trucking, especially given the spot rates that have been out there and anyone's trying to get their product move is almost willing to pay whatever they, they need to to get it there. Uh, wh when do you think that's going to subside? You know, I'm hearing people think perhaps in the second half of this year, but uh, I'm sorry, 2022, but who knows? Uh, that's why I'd love to see what you guys think. You're, 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 in, de you're in the weeds on this more than uh, uh, most are, considering your connectivity. Fadi, if you want to take so, that number, uh, let's see what you have done. Yeah. Or go ahead, Eric. Beautiful. Eric, please. Oh, yeah, that's fine. So, um, so there, there's a lot of things ha happening here. Um, so let's let's talk about a couple of things that are happening in supply chain. First and foremost, is inventories. If you look at inventories relative to uh, the retail market, right, they're low. But that's also because you're comparing it to very high levels of activity for the sales environment. But in general. They're actually pretty robust. Where we're seeing the problems is in the automotive space. And that is also having a ripple effect. So, so you have huge demand for retail goods. And then you are looking at uh, an environment where uh, retail uh, continues to be strong, but they need more inventory. So when that happens, in, gen in general, when you have a disconnect in your inventory sales ratio number goes low. There's a push and a need for transportation demand. And what we find is that, and, and Hadi kind of alluded to this, is we find that you don't typically move it very efficiently because you have underlying demand that says, I need it. And so if you get 75% of your load full uh, and they say, you got to go, then you go. Um, and so those are the types of things that that are, are happening within the, the overall transportation market. The other thing too is we're finding that businesses and industries that typically didn't compete with each other for transportation, that is clearly happening now because things are so tight. 2018, we saw 100% utilization of, of the fleet. And that was so abnormal. 
Um, now we are back to 100% utilization. If you have a driver sitting in a truck, that person is, and, and that piece of equipment is moving. So those things are happening. And if I, if I had told you before that the railroads would be flat to down on the number of loads that they're moving relative to, to historical basis uh, in an environment where we have a, um, a supply chain disruption uh, that's this bad, we would have said no way. You would have said no. The and I'm going to put this just briefly into context so we can because I think Fadi is going to have some good good commentary on on this. If we look at what's happening with the ports, the ports is a microcosm of everything that's going on. So it's very easy to pinpoint that. So it is not just a labor thing at the ports. It's not that you just say, "Great, I'm going to make everybody work 24/7. Let's go." Um, the reality of it is is that you have one, labor issues, two, Fadi spoke, uh, mentioned it with regards to having somebody work, and in this case, at a warehouse. You have warehouses that are completely full, but you have people who they need more workers uh, at those warehouses to keep the throughput going. You clearly need uh, some more drivers, but the drivers in that drainage environment is not the constraint. But it's if you open it up, you just say, ah, let's go 24-7. That doesn't help it. The other thing, too, is we're seeing a significant shortage of chassis to move those containers away from the port. And that is one of the big one of the big problems. So then you have more congestion at the port as that congestion builds. Then they say, I need to look for another port. Well, you can't really go up to Canada because they've been having some um, some weather issues on their line that created disruptions for the railroads to move it into Chicago. That's a typical pathway that they like. So then they start moving into the East Coast and into the Gulf Coast. Well, those aren't a rail move. That, that's a truck move. And then you're now taking chassis away from those ports and bringing those further inland. So you create an additional imbalance that wasn't there before. So it's a lot of things happening uh, at once uh, that is creating that is creating this. Um, so let me pass this back um, to to you, Bill, um, and get some get Fadi's input because this is this is I think people think it's just an easy solution and it's not. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Fadi, love to hear your thoughts. You know, one of the areas I, I know you're paying attention to is the port in LA. And I think last month in November there were about 81 uh, container ships sitting out in the port. I'm just curious, where is that at today? You know, Eric brought up a bunch of good points with 24 uh, 7 at the ports in Washington's Valley to try to alleviate some of the congestion. Um, you know, what, what are you seeing there? And is that is that the root yeah. of where we're at today? If that gets cleared up, does that help solve a lot of problems? Um, I mean, I, I, I'd say, look, there are um, some positive signs. Like if I look at the railroad side of things, um, we're caught with, un, you know, not being able to anticipate uh, the the difficulty that they are going to have with recruiting and uh, trying to fill the uh, recruiting pipeline, the cruise pipeline, and and it takes nine months to train an individual to become a, a, a an engineer or a conductor on a train. And attrition rates, I think a couple of companies at least have come out and said attrition rates are two times higher than they had been historically. So people are, are uh, resigning, going to do different jobs, uh, 
attrition rates are typically higher. And then you've got the demand environment that's very strong. And it took it took a lot longer to kind of refill those training pipelines. But you know, I think we're at a position now where these uh, initial uh, problems that were not necessarily anticipated have been uh, factored in. I think all these companies have started to tell us um, the uh, the pipeline of training is now full. We feel good about that. They've found solution, uh, paying bonus, uh, you know, doing all these kind of sort of things to refill that training pipeline. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of chassis being added to the market as well. Uh, and I think ultimately, if we go into some seasonal uh, weakness in the demand in the next three or six months, you know, that could be really good for velocity of the supply chain as well. I'm just going to give you an example. I think comes to what what um, what Eric was highlighting. Um, there's a company that have a very large market share in the intermodal space, and uh, they run their own 53 foot containers and chassis and equipment. Um, the the box turns, the container turns per month have gone down from have 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 gone from time the month to 1.6 times a month. Just to give you an example, like 30% of the capacity is down 20%. And I think that 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 problem is probably the same across the entire industry. So I think the lack of velocity in the supply chain, which has been exacerbated by, you know, strong demand that we have seen and Eric described, and I think ultimately some of these labor issues. And um, and uh, you know, I think as you as you kind of start to put some velocity in the supply chain, uh, you start to increase capacity in the process, and you start to get to a solution of some sort. So um, I think you know there has been a lot of solution put in place. Um, the same company I just talked about that lost 20% of capacity is adding significant amount of new capacity in the next three to six months uh, in terms of chassis, in terms of containers, the trailers. And I think we're going to see that velocity come back gradually. But look, demand is strong. Inventories are, are, are still kind of lean to some degree. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's going to stay tight, I would say, throughout 2022. But I think we'll see some some improvement in that utilization factor that that uh, Eric described being 100%, I think it should it should start to ease maybe somewhere in the mid to high 90s. It will, it will stay very tight, but I think it will ease uh, gradually as we go through uh, 2022, if that makes sense. Well, that's really positive to hear that the training, the training pipeline for the companies, various industries are improving significantly. And as I think about employment just across the whole uh, economy and how challenging it's been for everybody, do you guys see that that's improving? Um, wages are definitely going up, and um, you know it's a, it's a, a competition for getting a body in the door, no matter where you go. And I've heard some of the people are leaving just for a dollar to go to a different uh, across the street to a warehouse, uh, leaving pretty good job. Eric, what, do you, what have you heard about that from your clients? Oh no, that's clearly happening. We're clearly seeing people jump, uh, but at the same time. Um, it's not as per pervasive as I think people um, expect. Um, COVID has put people on edge and they want some of that stability. So we're not seeing them jump a whole, a whole lot. It does give them some, some pause to say, should I? Uh, one of the things that's happening in the, in the labor market 
is and and this is I'll, I'll talk about the the commercial vehicle space is is a, is a great example, right? So um, you have the end product waiting for chips. You know they basically have built the truck and they're waiting to put a chip in it. But then the you have this issue that works its way all the way back, and each of the suppliers then are saying, okay, I need workers. Let's go. I'm ready to go three shifts. And they start pumping those out and they hire everybody. And then the next week they're like, I don't have a part, right? Or I have a bottleneck up in front of us that I can't send them anymore. I need to wait. So then you move back to two shifts or you go back to one shift. And that can happen for a little period of time. And the people that are the employees from there say, fine, I can live with that. But when it continues to keep happening, that ability to say, you know, is this a a job that I I can make money at? Be, comes into question, and so we're seeing that happen in a lot of a lot of sectors. The other thing, though, too, is we are seeing that there is a shift away from some of the service sectors into manufacturing. I know here in the Midwest specifically, uh, we have had a, a large problem where you're going into a drive-through at, at a, uh, a fast food place, and you're sitting there forever. You're like, where is everybody? Well, when you finally get to the root of the problem, you start realizing that a lot of those people have actually moved into manufacturing work or warehouse work or things that they weren't traditionally doing. So you don't have that traditional overflow worker that you had before. But in general, the overall market has kind of blown up as it relates to um, to, to workers. The final thing I'll, I'll add, though, too, is when we came out of the Great Recession, one of the problems that we had is that we didn't have a transient workforce because we had so many people who owned a house and were upside down on a house and they couldn't move. So even if a job was out in California and you were out in New York, you couldn't couldn't do it. We're seeing a similar thing here, except for it is a COVID related issue, whereas they are unwilling to be transient. And they're, they're kind of saying, I'm holding it in place. Even though a job may be over at a different spot, I am not willing to move quite yet. And so that is actually very similar to the behavior that we saw coming out of the Great, out of the great Recession. Great. Um, hey, Eric, if I could step back, uh, we were talking about some of the ports, and um, you had said that people are looking at alternatives. And I know some of the East Coast ports have been always been trying to pull traffic out of the West Coast ports. Is it working or what are people doing? You know, because they, they want to get yeah, those 81 working. ships. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's working just by, by default. So the shipper ultimately is we're looking at what is the, the time until I get delivery. And so if they can expedite that in any fashion, uh, let's say that it's taking traditionally seven to, to seven days to 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 a week and a half to two weeks to get across country. And if they can say, you know what, I can get it uh, a few days before that if I bring it into the East Coast, it's less efficient of a move for them. Uh, but they may say, let's do it because they are, they're going to be waiting in now. So not only are you waiting to get to the port, but then to get it across country takes takes a, a while. So So clearly the shipper is saying, I just need it. And so they are looking at any port that they can find to get that inland. And we've seen clearly where um, Savannah has uh, benefited heavily. Houston has benefited. We've seen actually uh, New York, New Jersey 
all of the different ports have benefited. But what we're finding, though, is you have a significant amount of inbound traffic on the East Coast, and you don't have the same type of growth on outbound traffic. And that is not normal, right? If you're in Houston, traditionally, you brought something in, uh, and then the port sent something out. It was well-balanced. Now they're bringing a bunch of stuff in and they're not sending a lot of the same amount out. That imbalance is creating a lot of the, the problems that are really difficult to get over. So in this case, these coast and Gulf Coast ports are very excited that they're getting more freight, but it's creating other headaches that you're like, if it would have been traditional organic growth that was more normalized, then they could have handled handled that. Um, and and everybody wouldn't have as much of the problem as we're seeing. But I'm not not saying that that the East Coast or Gulf Coast have done anything wrong. It's just that the global markets are are so crazy right now. They're trying any try to find any path that they can get to do that. And this is why we're seeing spot rates for truck uh, very high. I mean that's that that's part of it. Um, they are trying to figure out how do they get stuff to to the end. And product and to, to what Fadi was talking about, if you look at the spot rate data out there, dry van, refrigerated um, van, very, very high rates that they're getting paid still. We had thought that the spot market would basically normalize this past summer and that we would start to see some easing in that pressure point. That really hasn't happened. And that that clearly is is a result of what we're seeing because of the global supply chain issues, uh, and and trying to get trying to get freight uh, moved. So, do you think this is a short term uh, fix then by having some of the vessels go over to the East Coast, or are they committed from a long term basis now that they've been able to uh, work over there, see what, how the solutions working for them, and plus what the shippers want? It's 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 I think it's short term in the sense that you will uh, you'll see some of them come back because it's again it's still more, a more efficient move to come through the west coast if they can right. some people will they'll say oh well i'm going to look at these ports that i never looked at before and you'll you they'll gain some market share don't get me wrong i do think that that but it's not a permanent it's not a permanent shift yeah um hey, Fadi, what are you what are you hearing from the container lines about their position in the West Coast and, and uh, looking to resolve what's going on. And then twofold, let me ask, you know, Washington's involvement, what they're trying to do to uh, create some ideas and, and hopefully alleviate some of the issues. Is that working to uh, improve the situation? Yeah. Um, look, we, um, we looked at imports into the U.S., over the last five and 10 years, three years, we published something that I'm happy to send to your audience if they want. And ultimately we identified that there is a shift in the supply chain towards Southeast Asia, towards Mexico. And if you look at the uh, uh, percentage of growth in imports to the US, uh, it is the highest from Southeast Asia and from Mexico. And it's actually been flat from China for a number of years. And um, so I feel that, you know, and when you look at the East Coast ports, uh, you know, I think there is a gradual shift towards the East Coast ports. And the Canadian uh, Railroad as well have jumped into the fray in the last six to 12 months. 
launching operations out of the uh, Canadian East Coast ports, which can potentially serve the Midwest market uh, faster and maybe four or $500 cheaper per container than uh, you know, doing it through, say, in New York, New Jersey, or somewhere else on the East Coast, because the volume would come through the Suez Canal, which is actually faster to go through the Suez Canal than to go through the Panama Canal from certain parts of Southeast Asia than it is. So I, I think there is a trend that had already kind of started before the pandemic. And I think it's going to probably accelerate uh, post-pandemic and uh, will continue to kind of grind from, from the West Coast to the East Coast. And, and I think the Canadian ports, which have been big gainers of market share on the West Coast, uh, like if you look at Vancouver and Prince Rupert ports, uh, they've been they've been gaining share from LA, Long Beach, and some of the other West Coast ports. I think that's going to continue to um, uh, to play out also over the next number of years, and that that just adds a lot of capacity to the market. And if you look at the combination of a railroad like CP and Kansas City Southern, I think it's going to create a little bit even more connectivity in that north south uh, trade and being able to uh, divert volume to other ports in LA, Long Beach, potentially, and still get to where you want to go to US Midwest. And, you know, but, you know, these are not things that are going to be solution for the next six to 12 months. Those are potentially going to be uh, changes in the supply chain over the next three to five years uh, and, and play out that way. And um, so, so I think um, LA, Long Beach will always have a dominant position, but I think that, uh, the stress on that on that uh, kind of land bridge, you know, that everything coming from Asia has to go to LA Long Beach and then move on that land bridge towards the east and towards the middle of uh, and the Midwest and middle of the country. I think the stress on that bridge is is going to ease over time. So, do you think this is going to cause a shift then as people see more containers come to the East Coast and how do they get them back uh, back to where they started from? Because today it's not set up that way. Yeah, I mean, I think I think w w the issue is once you get to the East Coast, it becomes more of a truck market, truck traffic. So, uh, you know, eighty to ninety percent of the traffic coming to the East Coast ports is typically handled by trucking. Um, I think the railroads have to play a bigger role, probably potentially going forward. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think the entire supply chain was really kind of built around the West Coast world. And that, that also takes time to spread out that supply chain and start to deal with volume to come from the East Coast and start to develop that supply chain that, that ultimately uh, refills those containers with export products and go to uh, the East Coast. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example. Ten years ago, um, there was nothing going on in Prince Rupert. Uh, in Canada. Uh, today, you've got a port that is doing over a million containers a year and has has a balance between empties going back that is very competitive relative to LA Long Beach, although there's 15,000 people who really live in that town where these containers come in. So they, but they've, you know, they were able to develop an export market. So uh, uh, that that's coming out of the Midwest, out of the Canadian a market that ultimately refills those containers and go back. I think that could uh, potentially develop over time as you go and you start to see that 
again, a balance going uh, towards the East Coast. And I think, um, but these, these things in the supply chain take a little bit more time to, um, to kind of play out. Uh, uh, that's not going to be something that solves the problem that we're in right now. Yeah. Um, if we go back to the second part of my question, sorry, was do you see, uh, Eric, do you see Washington's involvement helping out? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think it's helpful. I mean, that they can, uh, because they, they do have some levers that they can, that they can pull. Um, they can, you know, say, okay, we're not going to, uh, enforce some of the, some of the regulations, uh, hours of service, things like that, try and, and move things through. But, um, it's going to have a limited impact right now. I mean, I applaud what they're what they're trying to do for the moment, but this is just really going to have to to work its way work its way through the system. So I just um, I just don't I can't come up with a scenario um, that that Washington can really solve this particular problem for them in in the short term. I think longer term structurally, clearly there are some things that that can be that can be done and and, and helpful, but. Uh, for now, that's I think that's more incentivizing different uh, behavior, but but right now it's just unlikely to see any uh, any traction. Well, how about how about with OSHA's um, you know, mandate out there? They're trying to push through with the vaccine and companies over 100 employees. Uh, it's being held up in the courts, but let's say it gets cleared up and they prevail. You know, what does that do to the supply chain? Body, it, it, it probably. Uh, Sorry, go ahead, buddy. You're good. We're just we're tap dancing. Yeah, I I, I want to. Yeah, I want to uh, follow up on what Eric said because I completely agree with him. We watched the data as the government interfered a little bit at the port level, and I think I remember at the time there were like somewhere between seventy and eighty ships parked outside LA Long Beach. Now we're over hundred. The last number I saw was hundred and one ships and. We haven't really seen much of an impact from, you know, uh, uh, these uh, kind of interventions. It seems way too complex to to assume that this is going to be uh, um, resolved by a decree of twenty four hour work or whatever. Um, so, uh, but like, I, I, um, you know, I think for for you know, what I like I mentioned earlier, I think. Um, the industry itself is starting to find a solution to those problems. And we're seeing it in terms of um, the pipelines of training at the railroad, the, you know, a trucking company I cover, I was talking to CEO yesterday and he was saying uh, in the third quarter, we had 12% of our trucks parked because we couldn't find drivers to basically drive them. And he said in the fourth quarter, it's a little bit better. It's still pretty bad, double digit, but it's a little bit better than it was in the third quarter. And they seem to be signaling that, you know, going into the next few months, things should uh, start to continue to move in that direction. And so I think you are seeing kind of people learn from where the difficulties are and coming up with innovative ways to find solutions to deal with these problems. Uh, the same the same on the railroad side. These are companies that have been laying off people for the last 20 years. Now they're they're trying to recruit and having a tough time. Uh, through the pandemic, they you know they let go a lot of people, and usually they go back and call them, and everybody comes back. And now they're going to call them, and nobody's coming back. 
So, so they're having to go and kind of refill these. But, you know, six months ago, they were saying we're going to hire 500 people, but then hire 200 because they couldn't fill that pipeline. Now we're starting to see that kind of uh, uh, um, um, improve and advance. So I, I think you're going to find the solution coming from these kind of uh, uh, initiatives. And I think um, um, I wouldn't discount the importance or the potential of the demand feedback to the supply side being a big factor. I think if we go into a seasonally weaker um, environment um, in the next three or four months and potentially even weaker demand, because a lot of these economic data have kind of softened a little bit. And I think that could be potentially where you can start to get velocity into the supply chain to come back. So you think that's more from a, a inflationary perspective that you think there could be some softness that would help alleviate the congestion? I, I, I think we are seeing it already in our data. Uh, in our rail demand index, which has been highly, highly correlated with six months lead time with rail car loads, I can tell you we've seen that soften every single month for the last four months uh, and across the board. Um, not, not that we're calling for a contraction in the demand, but I think that 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 big surge that was around six or eight months ago is 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 definitely moderating right now. Yeah. Uh, Finally, one last on the on the port side, do you uh, foresee any issues, labor issues? I know the West Coast is been in discussion for a while and they're they're pushing back against what the east coast had from a uh, automation perspective you see any disruptions coming in 22 from that from that side of the country is this to me yeah sorry i didn't know if you heard me yeah 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 yeah, yeah sorry um yeah i think i think it's going to be a potentially con contentious issue um you know technology uh, introduction is still going to dominate that negotiation, and I think it's going to be uh, a pretty difficult uh, uh, negotiation. I mean, if you go back for the last two, three rounds of these contract negotiations, they've almost never been going very smoothly. And I think now there is a little bit more tension even between the two sides around the technology introduction and I think could be problematic. And I think that's, that's where I think... Uh, uh the the next biggest risk to the supply chain in the next six months i think it can be interesting just from the perspective of that's a labor force that helped the president get elected and um you know it's going to be a, a dance between washington and the labor force there um hey eric uh something i've talked with you about the past and the audience would appreciate hearing this is you know a lot of discussion about near sourcing or bringing manufacturing back to the u.s mm -hmm. Uh, to try to avoid these situations that we're going through right now. What are you seeing? What are you hearing on that front? Yeah, it's uh, most of the, most all the nearshoring that we um, uh, that's happened over the last several years is uh, already done. I, I mean, it's it's I think it's run its course in, in a lot of ways. Most of the things that we're running into from a supply chain standpoint are things that are not going to be efficient uh, to produce here specifically in within the U.S., we might see a little bit more moving down into Mexico, but that's that the last wave of of nearshoring is where 
where we saw that happening. We were seeing a lot of movement into uh, into Mexico. Uh, but on some of the, the issues, I'll give an example that we talked about semiconductors. Right? They've said, oh, maybe we should be doing semiconductors here. Well, the investment is huge. You have to have a huge investment for um, for very little return. I mean, the, the margins are thin. So doing that and, and having a higher priced um, labor labor force here within the U.S., it just really doesn't make sense. It still makes sense to import that even with what we're what we're seeing here. One of the things and I'm going to take a step back because um, Fadi was kind of alluding to some of this, this stuff and I'm, I'm going to connect the dots a little bit. One of the things that I don't think we fully appreciated is how much e-commerce and what we'll call omni-channel ordering. So people can order it any way they want, from their phone, uh, from their laptop, uh, iPad, whatever it is. Uh, and they can get it delivered when they want, where they want, how they want. That ultimately is a very inefficient move. And we are seeing the industry kind of in its infancy of trying to embrace, embrace that. So therefore, we have all of these supply chain issues that are coming to a head at the same time that we're seeing record orders for manufactured goods here domestically. So core capital goods orders are, are way, way high. I mean, record levels, they can continue to keep growing. So all of these things are happening. So even if you nearshore it, right? I'm going to go back to that now. Even if you nearshore it, you don't have the labor <laughs> to do that in the cost structure. So this is a catch twenty two all the way all the way through. You you still have strong orders for domestic goods, uh, and we're still having a hard time finding labor. So how do we nearshore something for that? At the same time, we're having supply chain issues that is is continued to get disrupted by um, not just manufacturing, but the e the e commerce. Um, I'll call it the e commerce revolution. Even though we felt like it's happened before, it's it's really here now. Uh, COVID put it on steroids. Eric, one of the uh, audience members asked a question while you were talking, is there a risk of oversupply when the uh, supply chain normalizes? Uh, probably not. I, I don't, I, I, it's, it is, it is always possible, but where we are, um, where there would be some concern from an oversupply standpoint is consumer goods. So yes, that is very possible. We start seeing things normalized. You have too much inventory. And uh, we haven't had a good um, holiday sales season for a while. So I think that's really what you do. The industry goes on a binge and they say, we're just going to sell everything at a 50% rate and they get rid of it. Um, and I think that that's a likely scenario. So I think that that's relatively short-lived. It's when you start having oversupplies within manufacturing, that's where that becomes really concerning because you have no place to to put it. You don't. Ha you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to fire sale it. It just isn't possible uh, to do that. And because of the constraint in the supply chain and the expectation of how long it's going to last, they won't do that. Uh, that won't be a problem. If they overshoot, it would be sometime in 2023 that they would overshoot on manufacturing uh, because they're so lean at the, at the moment um, that we feel like they that there's that pressure there that they can be able to continue to build uh, without interruption, at least through 2022 and the first part of 2023. That's maybe the part of time that we're we're a little bit worried about if we had to say that there was some concern. But I'm just I, I'm right now, I'm not overly concerned. I think I'm more concerned about just some of that inflationary pressure that's in there. Um, but if you're not selling stuff, you're going to continue to see and demand is there. 
um, you're going to continue to see high prices, specifically within the commodity markets. Uh, Fadi, let me get your perspective yeah. on. Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to tie along a little bit to Eric's comment. Completely agree with him. I think maybe 2023, 2024 timeframe where where you can see the probability of oversupply potentially or that supply demand basically becoming a little bit more imbalanced, but the other way was low, low utilization. Because I think this is probably the time frame where if you're looking at the ocean side of things, uh, the order books of new ships get delivered around that time frame. And ultimately, when you look at a recovery in, in travel and the return of cargo capacity in the in the in the in the passenger aircraft fleet, I think again that's probably the time frame 2023, 2024, maybe even where you can maybe start to see that supply accelerate. But you know, between now and then, I, I'd, I'd be surprised to see any any uh, any issues on the supply demand side uh, across everything, pretty much ocean, air, or or uh, or uh, or land transportation. You bring up a good point that I think a lot of us tend to forget about from the air cargo perspective is that it's a lot of passenger air that uses the belly of the, uh, the uh, plane to ship that air cargo around. And although a lot of us have been on flights and they've been pretty crowded, there's still a lot of airplanes sitting on the sidelines that haven't been brought back. So uh, you know, we need some more momentum in the economy to, to get that back. Um, uh, Fadi, one question to you on, on the uh, just the global perspective from a ports perspective is, and we saw previously uh, China shut down a few ports with uh, some of the COVID variants picking up. We now have Omicron. Do you think that we're still at risk from that having a rippling effect throughout the uh, system? Yeah, I think I think that's a, a real and present danger for the supply chain for the next three months. We saw how Delta variant impacted the supply chain, you know, um, uh, in the last six months because of a shutdown at the port in China that really kind of clogged up all this issue. I, I, I think it was probably in one of the top three problems that exacerbated the supply chain problem in the last six months. So Omicron, I think, potentially has, um, uh, has uh, brings a lot of risk to the supply chain in the next three months. If we start to see that happen in a, in, a, in a more meaningful way. I think we've seen at least one occasion now where one Omicron case caused basically an entire supply chain to shut down in China. Um, if that starts to happen at a, at a much larger scale, I think you're looking at exacerbating some of the problems we saw in the last three, six months. Well, let's hope, uh, hope that doesn't happen. Um... Hey, before we get into the audience q and I'd just love to get your perspectives on what do you see in the positives that have come about through all this disruption? Because there's going to be some good that's come out of it, lessons learned, and um, you know, what should our, our clients be thinking about from their perspective, you know, regardless of what industry they're in? So right, if we could start with you and then follow up with Eric and your perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, uh, that you know, clients and, and the shipper community is trying to uh, understand how in 2022 they can do things that are uh, better, how they control the risk in that supply chain. Um, so everybody is trying to figure out where to get capacity, how to lock in capacity, and how 
uh, uh, pricing is almost not a, question, a big question mark. The question is how do we get the capacity basically, you know, as we go into 2022 and ensure that we have the inventories in place. You know, I think I think that uh, that um, uh, a lot of these supply chain uh, uh, changes that we we think will happen over time as people try to redesign their supply chain to be more efficient, more effective, and more uh, uh, durable. I think a lot of the focus is on um, where can I find the capacity. And uh, how do I ensure that this capacity is going to be available to me over the next 12 months? Uh, which is why we think ultimately pricing is going to continue to be, at least for contracted business, I think will continue to be very, very robust. Like if you're a shipper, I think you have to you have to assume that you have to pay a little bit more going into next year still uh, to move your cargo. I think the spot market you know, could soften a little bit as that supply demand, like we indicated, start to kind of enter more more into, 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 into balance gradually through the year. I think the spot market could soften a little bit, but most of the freight moves in, 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 uh, in uh, contracted capacity. And I think that's going to continue to be highly competitive and more for and I think that's across pretty much every mode, intermodal, truckload, refrigerated, rail, obviously. Uh, uh, even even in, the, in, the, um, in the air, I think in the short term, um, I mean, I'll give you an example. One of the large air cargo company had said that they have missed almost 165 flights um, last quarter because of uh, COVID protocol that basically ate into the crew capacity. So they didn't have enough crews to fly their aircraft because of these COVID protocols that were occurring across um, various uh, airports in Asia, in Europe, and in the US, but mostly in Asia, obviously. So, so, uh, so that, that, that is going to continue to be, I think, a pretty tight market. And Omicron is going to eat into how fast the passenger capacity comes back and ultimately provide some relief so Hopper's uh, biggest focus is uh, um, ensuring that they have the capacity, and I think they have to be prepared to continue to see elevated pricing throughout 2022. Yeah, and I can add on. Um, I can add on some things that that we're seeing um, kind of across the board. One is that we're seeing that the owner operators uh, clearly have a place at the table. That hasn't been uh, the case for a period of time. A lot of that is coming about because of the tightness that we're seeing and kind of the gig workforce uh, started to mature. Uh, the owner operators were kind of that first gig worker that was out there and they've been there for, for a long time, but they were starting to kind of slowly uh, uh, decline. And that really has jumped up again. And a big part of that is the digital freight matching. Digital freight matching has been um, accelerated and they continue to refine it. And I think that's one of the positives that's come out of, out of this. Um, also, as part of that, we're finding that companies, not just the shippers, not just the carriers, manufacturers, everybody um, has to be nimble. They have to understand where their risks are. They can't just kind of take things for granted. But um, the, the ability to now change on a dime um, is so much there. And that is ingrained in the system. Um, that if you had told somebody that they would be able to turn on a dime 
um, three years ago, they would have, some of them would have just laughed at you. Um, and they realize that they have to con continue to be to be relevant. Uh, the final thing then is productivity. So not just the digital freight matching, um, but overall productivity. How do they continue to put automation into their system, continue to digitize things, uh, continue to, to train uh, better, and then uh, figure out how do they use the workforce that they, that they have uh, to, their, to their best ability. Um, and so, therefore, it's uh, it's changing how businesses are are thinking about um, all of that. So, uh, and I find I, the risk mitigation stuff that that Fadi talked about is uh, that is power paramount now. Um, we we would have thought that during the Great Recession that everybody would have said, "I'm going to start doing risk mitigation." I need to understand that um, that is now top of everybody's mind right now um, as they are seeing growth. They are very excited about that, but they're also now saying, "Where are my risks, and how do I how do I alleviate those those risks?" And Kafadi's absolutely right. Price really doesn't matter right now; it's securing capacity. Um, and so, what we're finding is that relationships are be, are being built right now to be able to last. Um, and they talk about shipper of choice a lot of times, and uh, the shipper wants to be a preferred shipper. They want the carrier to say, yes, I want to move your your goods. Um, and that's how you secure capacity. And those are the things that we're going to continue to see, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I agree. I, this is a topic that is at the forefront of every CEO's office, board of directors meeting, supply chain is, is paramount. Um, and uh, they're always trying to figure out what to do. And your point about the preferred shipper of choice is that you know, I think the folks that were were commodity buyers in the past and didn't want to develop relationships are uh, are uh, being squeezed a little bit right now because those who were committed to certain transportation companies that are getting taken care of. So I think it's a shift in, in mindset. Um, hey, Eric, can you, I think this is fundamental to everybody else on the call is that, you know, as they think about 22, 23, what should they be, considering as they're preparing their forecasts and their budgets, you know, just from a holistic perspective? Uh, nope. Ab absolutely. I mean, the, um, trying to understand what the, what the base fundamentals are, right. Are they going to, to shift? What's the global market going to look like? Um, so in general, right now, we have an expectation that manufacturer is going to continue to grow. We have an expectation that the consumer is going to start to shift a little bit from goods into the service sector. Uh, but overall, that growth is there. So understanding those shifts and trying to assess those shifts, shifts are something that we are really trying to get people to to understand as they look out um, over the forecast horizon and, and saying, here's what here's what my forecast should be. Don't get so hung up on, oh, why can't I find a, a worker? Right. And, and, and I think understanding that is 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 hugely important. Uh, but I think people get very frustrated about that. And a lot of it is trying to say, OK, what's that solution going to be um, and how are businesses um, meeting that with unique solutions to continue to move? To move forward, so from a business planning perspective, those are those are the the things, and um, and like I said before, too, one of the the risks continues to be some inflationary pricing, um, but it's less of a risk of are we going to see a slowdown? It's more of a risk of how much money can you make, and how do you pass that on to your end end customer? Um, because right, we just don't see inflation being the the driver to say. 
it derails everything uh, at the moment. There's just too many unknowns. Well, Fadi, Eric, thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh, been a very insightful conversation. As I mentioned at the onset, to our, uh, those that are listening, our, our goal at BMO is to add value to our clients' business. I hope this added value uh, to yours today by participating and listening in on this. Um, there'll be a replay that will be circulated for those who weren't able to uh, join us. But uh, if you have any questions about what we can do at BMO to help out your, your supply chain needs, please reach out to your BMO banker. Thank you for joining us and happy holidays. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.